That's very, very kind of you. And I appreciate that great connection between him and me. Uh, He missed out that at least six inches below the neck, I'm of the same complexion that he is too. But then again, we shall not try and empirically verify that. (laughs) I'm happy to be here and my wife is here with me. We don't get to often travel together, but it's nice to have Margie join me here. And um, uh, last week I was in uh, Williamsburg doing an open forum at College of William and Mary and one other public setting. And then we flew in here and from here go on to Phoenix tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow we fly to Phoenix in the afternoon and uh, I've got a big um, event coming up at Arizona State University on Wednesday. If you will please keep that in your prayers because they've got the big Wells Fargo Arena rented about 10,000 plus and all of the tickets are gone. So we're expecting a full house for that. Uh, The interesting thing is that the last two years they had uh, Richard Dawkins uh, deliver the series there and somebody must have appealed to the powers that be in the name of diversity. So, I am providing the diversity on um, Wednesday and I've actually asked John Lennox and Michael Ramsden to join me and so the three of us will field their questions on the subject, is belief in God delusional? We'd really value your prayers and then we celebrate our 25th anniversary as a ministry following that uh, the weekend in Phoenix. It's good to be with you, Tom, and be in your church and to be part of this meeting along with Wade. Uh, You've got some tough subjects selected, and I'll do my best to address what I can in terms of understanding the barriers that there are to evangelism today and what are the roadblocks, what are the issues that we come up against. I do think we are facing the kind of challenge that is of extraordinary proportions I have been in itinerant work now, actually since 1972, apart for some breaks for studies, and I find it becoming more and more daunting, more and more difficult to deal with the underbrush of our culture. What is now taken in, what is now believed, what is now assumed. Uh, I've talked to people from various Uh, walks of life. I've just finished a manuscript called Has Christianity Failed You? And it was based on interviews that I did with many people who claimed to once upon a time walk with the Lord and then finding it intellectually untenable or for whatever reason have walked away from it. I've not dealt with it from the theological perspective of what all this means, but from their frontal challenge to what they are saying it means to them and responding to their questions. And it is almost eerie to sit across a table and sometimes listen to the same lines. It's almost they went to the same school of doubt uh, to present their counter perspective. Many of them are sincere. I don't think all of them are trying to dodge reality. Uh, One man on the phone told me, he said, I honestly want to tell you the change in my thinking has been so dramatic and I wish it weren't so. But at the same time, some amazing things happened that you say to yourself, what happened here? In the 1970s and 80s when I was doing my work in philosophy, the major atheistic writer that I was reading was Anthony Flew. 
responding to some of Flew's critiques of the capacity to even know truth, the verifiability ideas, the falsifiability ideas, reading all of that, getting into his kind of thinking, and now in the last two to three years he has renounced his atheism. He's not come all the way to a theistic position, probably now in the deistic framework, but he has gone on record as saying that if there is one that would turn out to be relevant to my search, it would be the Christian faith. And he has found the writings of N.T. Wright to be enormously persuasive to him, especially on the resurrection motif. So there's one who was from that side of the camp. And then in the last six to eight months, A.N. Wilson, who was that prolific writer and literary scholar in England several years ago, took a full-blooded hit at C.S. Lewis castigating him, calling him having been beaten in debates when he was around and so on, sort of exposing what he considered was Lewis's Achilles heel. And yet this year, in April, he makes this turn around and comes back to Christ and has written and in his interviews at the Times of London and with the Wall Street Journal, if you just Google his name, A.N. Wilson Conversion, you'll see his interview with uh, leading scholars as to why he has made his return journey to Christ. And his assertion is that the whole thing is some kind of a concerted effort of the elite in scholarship to somehow impugn the scriptures and make them look rather juvenile when the fact of the matter is, he said, around the circles, around the table of people like that, you really see how vulnerable they are in their own worldview. So we've got both sides to it. If you read books on the histories of conflict between science and, quote, religion, you'll see what we are facing with Richard Dawkins and all is nothing new. This has gone on actually for centuries. Somebody suddenly emerges as if the, the exact sciences are the most powerful and most truth-oriented disciplines there are and religion is nothing more than fanciful escapes of cultures to find some kind of a refuge for their own struggles and to be a play in a place where they can talk to transcendent powers even if they don't actually exist. So we're living in a tough time. And what I want to do tonight, uh, this afternoon, is give to you three moods that I was looking at in the 70s and 80s that have now come to fruition in our time. And I strongly suggest to you that uh, what has happened has taken nearly two generations to produce. This did not happen overnight. People sometimes think what's happened in America has happened very suddenly, very drastically, very rapidly. Well, maybe the last leg has been very rapid, but the groundwork was already laid somewhere in the 60s and thereon. You could just see culture beginning to struggle. In fact, I was in my 20s when I heard Francis Schaeffer for the first time. And I was in the city of Toronto where I was studying and I remember Francis Schaeffer and Everett Koop coming there and they were giving their talks on whatever happened to the human race and they were projecting where all this thinking was headed. I believe it was in early 1970, Malcolm Muggeridge sounded the warning sign. Muggeridge said this, it is difficult to resist the conclusion that 20th century man has decided to abolish himself. 
tired of the struggle to be himself, he has created boredom out of his own affluence, impotence out of his own erotomania, and vulnerability out of his own strength. He himself blows the trumpet that brings the walls of his own cities crashing down, until at last, having educated himself into imbecility, having drugged and polluted himself into stupefaction, he keels over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and becomes extinct. It was early 70s. Prior to that, he was a chaplain at the University of Edinburgh. When trends began at the university, and he said he could not bring himself to being in an institution that was making decisions like that. And his farewell address to the University of Edinburgh is a brilliant one, enshrined in one of his books when he bid them goodbye. And he said, whatever else we may find the future in, it's not going to be in sexual indulgence and psychedelic fancies as we move along this highway at a high speed to self-destruction. You're talking nearly 40 years ago. So these were laid, and some of you may be familiar with the motifs that I bring to you, but let me try and bring them up to date for you. Let me start by a definition. What is culture? Tillich used to say, culture is the, uh, religion is the essence of a culture, and culture is the dress of religion. And in that, Paul Tillich, I think, was quite accurate. Religion is the essence of any culture, and culture is the dress of religion. So if you go to India today, the Hindu, Buddhist, pantheistic tandem has produced Indian culture, or vice versa. You go to the Middle East, the Islamic worldview has produced their culture with the exceptional difference of uh, the Hebrew people and in Israel where it's now almost a challenge between Hebrew Orthodox faith and secularism in a very strident fashion. And depending on where you go to in the country, what, what, what tone you will actually encounter. But culture has been defined in these terms. It is an effort to provide a coherent set of answers to the existential questions that confront all of us in the passage of our lives. It is an effort to find a coherent set of answers to the existential questions that confront all of us in the passage of our lives. So if you were to ask what American culture is like, it would actually trace its roots back to the framework of the early documents of, the, of this nation, what they actually assumed and what it was they were pursuing. So in the early days you would read things like, we are all created equal and endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. Just think of that one statement. The Muslim would never have made that. The pantheist would not have made that. The naturalist would not have made that. Now I'm not saying that made the founding ideas Christian. I'm just saying it is Christian ideas that made it possible to make a statement like that. And so when they assumed that for life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, Again, those are sort of the footnotes to what is pregnant in that opening statement. 
I know a woman who's now a member of parliament in Singapore. She went to Harvard, and at Harvard University, she did her thesis in the American Constitution. She became a lawyer in Singapore and is now both a professor at the university there and is a member of parliament there. And she told me this in a conversation. She said, I don't believe that the American Constitution makes sense apart from a transcendent point of reference. And that was her thesis at Harvard. I said to her, how did you ever get away with a thesis like that? <laughs> Here's her exact response to me. She said, I'm Chinese and I'm a woman. But she traced it back to what are the ontic reference? What do these ideas trace themselves back to? And again, I'm repeating for you, you know, I'm not debating with anybody, does, is this a Christian nation or not? I'm just thinking about it myself. Pantheism would never say we're all created equal because the caste system doesn't allow that. The Muslim will never say it for the pursuit of freedom or liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It is an enforced religion where it is actually practiced and appended to their government formulation as the Islamic Republic of. You don't have the freedom to disbelieve in Iran. There is compulsion. And what I say to you, I've said it in Islamic countries and I've challenged Islamic scholars on this. When I was writing my book, Light in the Shadow of Jihad, I, I spent a whole afternoon with a professor of Islamic studies from Bethlehem in Israel, and I challenged him on this one point again and again and again. And he finally said, yes, the prophet did say there is no compulsion in that you cannot be forced to ultimately become one, but that does not mean as governments we are not removed from the prerogative of enforcing it. So those ideas, and then when you look at the notion like this, long may the, our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Who would have ever thought to juxtapose the idea of holy with freedom? Because today it is more easy to join it to the idea of profane. Freedom is profane. Because it is taken to mean whatever you like, whatever you want. So culture as our nation was framed here was an effort to find a coherent set of answers to the existential questions that confront all of us in the passage of our lives. Now here's a very important point. A genuine cultural revolution, says Daniel Bell, is underway when one makes a decisive break with the shared meanings of the past, particularly those which relate to the deepest questions of the purpose and nature of human life. When a decisive break has been made from shared meanings of the past, particularly ones that relate to the purpose and nature of human life, where are we in the West today? We are systematically dismantling the shared meanings of the past. When the British monarch is crowned, he or she is given the Bible and told, this is the most valuable book the world affords. I have heard it said, I cannot verify it, that 
Prince Charles says if when he gets to the throne, he will change the terms so that he will not be called the defender of the faith, but the defender of the faiths. Interesting. Where something of a monolithic nature which made a nation like that possible is suddenly going to muddy the waters which will change the terms of engagement of a culture and the shared meanings of the past are lost. What makes a family a family? You have shared meanings. You have shared meanings. You watch your children being born. You celebrate their birthdays. You're by their sick beds when they are critically ill. They are with you when you're going through surgery. They're with you when you've lost your job. They're phoning you. They're writing to you. You're telling each other, love each other. They remember the homes. They remember the memories. And all of a sudden, if those shared meanings are amputated, a breakdown begins. And that's what's happening on a national level. How did this happen? I want to give to you these three moods that took place and bear with me as I go through them. The first, and all of them, by the way, on surface are good ideas. It's what we have done with them that I want us to pursue. The first is the mood of secularization. Secularization is the process by which religious ideas, institutions, and interpretations have lost their social significance. Secularization is the process by which religious ideas, institutions, and interpretations have lost their social significance. Remember that it is a process. Remember that the ideas that spiritually minded people put together are marginalized. In an interview with Hugh Hewitt this last week, Richard Dawkins was asked about his own belief system and the metaphysical implications of it. And he said, well, I don't know why philosophers think they have a private interpretation on ethics. Scientists have as much of it. Certainly, the theologians don't. That's what he said. Immediately, he was caustic on one discipline. I don't know why the metaphysicians think that, but what we do know is that the, that the theologians have no, 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 no voice to lend in this debate. What does he mean by that? We are either ignorant or unqualified or prejudiced. You know, you can spend seven to ten years doing theology, reading the great thinkers from Augustine to Aquinas and all of them, and at the end of it, some philosopher of science gets onto a microphone and says, we have nothing to contribute to this. Imagine. It's like me telling you that all of your studies, whatever you pursued, are worthless in the real issues of life. But that's the way it is. If you were to have a panel today, and you were to put a philosopher, an academic, and a lawyer, and a medical practitioner, and uh, some kind of political scientist and all, and you had a behavioral scientist as well in there, and put a, together a minister, and you started to discuss issues of marriage and sexuality, the average person in the audience would immediately assume that the minister is going to be the most prejudiced and probably the least informed. Not because it's true but because that's the way it is now caricatured and they say any stigma can lick a good dogma. <laughs> you stigmatize the person and you have deveined that person. Somehow there is no strength left in it. Now, what happens to a culture that has been so thoroughly secularized? 
What becomes the barrier to evangelism for you and for me? I think this is critical. So I'm going to take time in applying each of these a little more carefully. I remember many years ago when I was in, uh, when I just moved into Atlanta, which is now our home, that one of the leading pornographers was on trial for his stuff, whatever he was doing in pornography. And from what I hear, it was so vile that it made an average pornographer like Playboy and all look pretty average. This guy's stuff was supposed to be so extreme and so bizarre that actually a law, lawsuits were brought against him. And his lawyer was rather sharp, brilliant. The lawyer in interviewing the people who were, who were taking depositions from people who were going to be witnesses, first of all decided that no member of a church ought to be qualified as a member of a jury because a church member would be prejudiced. They were really looking for people who were zombies on pornography with no idea about it. Totally neutral. That's what we were looking for to make the decision on it. But then when they came onto the witness stand, the lawyer played havoc with the people who were witnessing against his client. He said something like this. Do you ever go into an art gallery? Say, yeah. Have you ever paid to go into an art gallery? Yeah. Have you ever paid to go into that kind of a museum where there are paintings by the great masters of art of unclothed people? Yeah. Tell, my, tell this jury why you go into a museum of art where there are paintings of people who are unclothed and you call that art, but you call my client stuff pornography. How do you answer that? You know, there are four fundamental laws of logic. One of those laws of logic is rather confusingly stated. It's called the law of the undistributed middle. But it basically means this. Just because two things have one thing in common does not mean they have everything in common. This law is violated more often than any other law today in conversation. They will find one slender thread of commonality and say, aha, everything therefore is in common. You may as well say, you go to a doctor and take your clothes off, why don't you do it in public as well? But here's what I want to say to you. On a witness stand, you possibly can't argue your philosophy of nudity or otherwise. But if a lawyer like that were to sit across a table from me, how would I proceed? I think one of the things I would say to him is this. Have you ever read the, bi the biography of Michelangelo? And if he answered yes or no, it would actually be immaterial because my counterpoint would be the same. I'd say this to him. Do you remember when Michelangelo started painting unclothed people, what his teacher said to him? In the book, The Agony and the Ecstasy, it's mentioned. The teacher said to him, why are you doing this? And he said, because I want to see man as God sees man. And the teacher said, be careful. You're not God. Be careful. You're not God. And then I would tell him the story of C.S. Lewis's conversion story, told in the book, The Pilgrim's, A Pilgrim's Regress. C.S. Lewis pictures himself on this journey towards truth 
and he doesn't know why he is turning his back upon certain systems until he finds the Christ who answers all his questions and meets him in his soul. Now he takes a regressive journey because he has an explanation of why it was he rejected all else along the way. As you know, he struggled with atheism, he struggled with pantheism, and ultimately came to that point of being dragged into the kingdom, kicking and screaming, and finding his salvation in Christ, and writing that brilliant book, Mere Christianity, and also Surprised by Joy. So in this, in a pilgrim's regress, which is allegorical, he tells the time in his journey as a young man called John, he is, he is a captive of the spirit of the age. Notice he does not see himself as free. He sees himself as captive, bound in chains. And as he's being served his breakfast, the waiter representing the, the stern-looking head of the spirit of the age looks at uh, young John and John is about to drink the milk and he says it's very very nutritious very very tasty and uh, the waiter just grins and gives him this sarcastic response and says nutritious tasty it's just the secretion of a cow isn't it it secretes urine it secretes milk what's the difference he cringes then he makes the big blunder of commenting on the tastiness of the eggs which he should never have done. I shall spare you the analogy the waiter gave him at that time. He didn't know what to say. But moments later he says, reason came riding on a horse and rescued me and said to the spirit of the age, you lie, you lie. You do not know the difference between what nature has meant for nourishment and what nature has meant for garbage. You do not know the difference between what nature's meant for nourishment and what nature's meant for refuse. You know, the woman in front of the lens of a camera displaying her body in a profane way for some insatiable man to empty his hard-earned money in his wallet and buy for a moment that seductive pleasure which will never satisfy him, but only entrap him. That woman in front of the camera, or that man in front of the camera, ought to say, stop, don't do this to me. But you know why they won't tell him to stop? Because once secularization has had its entire sway, it will lead us into a generation without a sense of shame. You show me any human being without a sense of shame, I will show you a dangerous person who will stop at nothing. And now we are in that stage, as I said to the pastors yesterday, who would have ever expected that the day would come where a nighttime comedian would look back upon his sensually and unrestrained driven lifestyle to make a joke out of it one after another. Whatever else it was, it wasn't a joke. But that's what it has become. As Hannah Arendt would have said, we have trivialized evil. The trivialization of evil. This is a barrier to evangelism today. Where we do not understand the nature of evil and we do not understand the nature of sin. It has become a very difficult thing to talk to any audience about 
evil and sin without immediately being branded some kind of dinosaur who still wants to hold on to issues that are no longer relevant in our time. And yet psychiatrists are having a time of their lives dealing with this erosion of evil. You know, they have actually discovered a drug that they think can help in post-traumatic stress syndrome and remove, it's kind of the morning after pill of something guilt-ridden the previous night. But you know what the biggest debate is? So if I give a man who's suffering from PTSS after going to the battlefield, what if a man who's committed mass murder in his neighborhood, who at the end of that comes and pops that pill the next morning and feels no sense of remorse over what he's done, what do you do with a human being like that? The sharp edges of reality come up against us that some things in life are intrinsically wrong. Morally wrong. Spiritually wrong. You cannot justify it by any stretch of imagination. Who will stand up and justify the torturing of a one-year-old baby? Just for the fun of it. Just for the fun of it. And yet that's what we're doing. You know, uh, my colleague Walter is here and um, I'm telling many stories about his son, Andreas. I won't tell all of them to you except to tell you that he's a bright child, incredibly brilliant young boy. On one occasion he looked at Walter and he said to him, isn't mommy looking pretty today? He said, yes. He said, then daddy, tell her that. This boy's only five. So Walter looks at his wife and says, Patty, you're looking very pretty today. And the little guy says, no, 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 not like that. She's not your friend. She's your wife. You know why I tell you that story? During the entire pregnancy, the doctors told her, 100% chance, this is going to be a Down syndrome baby abort. 100% chance. 100%. What are you and I going to do if we stand before God and we say to him, why did you allow our culture and our history to suffer so much? And God looks at you and me and says, you know, I sent you a few million babies along the way, some of whom had the answers to solve these problems and rescue you from this. And all you did was remove them and kill them. Nobody likes to hear that. Nobody likes to hear that. But you look at a bright-eyed little boy who brings so much joy at this stage of life when he's just barely on his own two feet. And then we think... We are so secularized that we can easily say, remove this. We know so much, but we don't know what it is to deal with wrong. Painful in your life and in mine, secularization. You end up with a generation with no shame. Secondly is pluralization. 
Pluralization is where there's a competing number of worldviews available to its members and no one worldview is dominant. Where there's a competing number of worldviews available to its members and no one worldview is dominant. Again, pluralization on the surface is a good thing. Just like secularization, no, I don't think we need a state-imposed religion here. I think it'll be deadly to both. But we do need a worldview that facilitates the freedom of expression of a transcendent worldview. And in pluralization, where we have no dominant worldview, what ends up happening is you extrapolate it to the false conclusion of absolutizing relativism. That nothing is absolute, everything is relative. Now you and I know philosophically it is not possible to defend that statement. For anybody to say all truth is relative either includes that statement or excludes that statement. If it includes that statement, that means that statement is also only relatively true, it is not always true. So it self-destructs. Or it excludes that, making that an absolute while denying absolutes actually exist. So relativism is a self-defeating thing. You may as well talk about a one-ended stick <laughs> and try to picture that in your mind. You know what this means? It means the death of truth. It means the death of truth. When uh, Larry King was interviewing Robert Shapiro after the famed O.J. Simpson trial, it was fascinating to watch two friends talk because Bob Shapiro, as he called him, Bob and Larry King are friends. So Larry King said, Bob, what do you think happened that day? And Shapiro said, Larry, I don't know. I wasn't there. He says, yeah, but what do you think is the truth about what happened there? Robert Shapiro said, Larry, I'm a lawyer. We don't make moral judgments, we make professional judgments. My word. Larry King stopped and said, Bob, is that a moral judgment you're making now or a professional judgment? <laughs> Can you make a statement like that, that in a court of law, where a double murder is under trial, that you're making professional judgments, not moral judgments? I thought all law was based on moral frameworks. The tragedy with pluralism is that it takes something that has the capacity for good and makes it that which is intrinsically tendentious wrong, tilted in the wrong direction. You know, pluralism is a good thing in some ways. Pluralism in ethnic flavors. Right at the top of which is Indian food. <laughs> Very good. Mexican food. Middle Eastern food. I, I said once before and I like to say it when Michael is in the audience, we'll give the English a pass on this one. <laughs> but you have to give the English full credit. They're the best connoisseurs of Indian food today. <laughs> Fish and chips has been replaced by 
curry and rice on a given night. One night in um, Sheffield, my wife and Michael Ramsden and I had just finished speaking at the University of Sheffield. We wanted some fish and chips. We couldn't find a place open. Everything was Indian food. Here, 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 there and everywhere. <laughs> Ethnic foods are great. Accents are great. I love to listen to the sound of accents and try to decipher what I think I have just heard. It's good. I love the sound of languages. I come from India, speak two or three myself, enjoy breaking into them from time to time. It's nice to bring back the past and voice a context which you can't do in a learned language. But pluralism in terms of morality is a very serious thing. For example, today there are 39 Sharia courts in England. What is the future of that? What's the future of that? Would I be given the chance of being tried by the Western judicial system if I were a citizen in Saudi Arabia or Iran? Would I? Or is there a sovereignty of one system in some worldviews and the notion that we can accommodate everything in our worldview only to find out that the most aggressive one superintends at the end of the day? Pluralism, pluralization, and what happens here is ultimately you end up with the death of reason. Now, some of you may have heard this illustration, but I don't know how better to give it than in this way and then move to my final thought. It's this. Many years ago, I was debating in a conversation with a professor of philosophy from California. But he, he accused me of not understanding Eastern religions because I didn't understand Eastern logic. This was an American gentleman telling me that. <laughs> Which is amazing when you're born and raised in the East and your ancestors go back to the highest caste of the Hindu priesthood that he considered my critique of that worldview to be a Western critique because he'd converted to that. So he made this big point over lunch with me. He said, you need to understand that there are two kinds of logic. Actually, he is wrong. There are more than that. But you don't stop a person that early in a dialogue. And so you just let him go. He said, there are two kinds of logic. He said, on the one hand, you have the either or law of non-contradiction, either this or that. He said, that's a Western way of thinking. I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. He said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. He said, no, it's not. I said, but keep going. He said, then there is the second kind of logic, which is the either-or logic, the law of uh, the, the, the both-hand logic, the dialectical system, which does not say either this or that, but both this and that. Karl Marx, employer, employee, put them both together, find a classless society, Nobody ever shows you one, but they sure like to talk about it. The dialectic of Marx was based on the dialectic of Hegel. You take a thesis, it spawns a synthesis, you bring it together, forms a synthesis, it forms a new thesis in history, which then spawns its synthesis, comes together another synthesis, and you keep going like this till the ultimate synthesis comes of the thesis and the antithesis that has been preceding it all along ideationally. So his was the idealism of dialectic, not either this or this, both this and that. He said, that's an Eastern way of thinking. I said, no, it's not. 
He said, yes, it is. I said, no, it isn't. He said, yes, it is. I said, keep going. He said, there's the either or law of non-contradiction, which is Western, both this and that, the dialectical system, which is Eastern. He said, Ravi, when you're studying Eastern philosophies, don't study it as a Westerner, study it as an Easterner, and when you see a systemic contradiction, you shouldn't complain about it, that's the way they think. I said, I have one question. When I am studying Eastern philosophy, you're telling me I either use the both hand system or nothing else, is that right? When I'm studying Eastern philosophy, I either use the both-hand idea of logic or nothing else. Is that right? The poor fellow had just started eating. <laughs> and he puts his knife and fork down and he, I'm quoting him now. He said to me, the either or does seem to emerge, doesn't it? <laughs> I said, sir, I've got some shocking news for you. Even in India, we look both ways before we cross the street. It is either the bus or me, not both of us. <laughs> he got it wrong. He was using the either or with which to defend the both hand because it suited him in that situation. He was borrowing from a worldview that he was negating to justify that which he wanted to defend while telling you the worldview that he borrowed from to negate it actually is wrong. And the more I listened to somebody like that, I thought to myself, my goodness, they're teaching philosophy and didn't think of this. <laughs> Shankara believed in the law of non-contradiction, the leading Indian philosopher. Gautama Buddha believed in the law of non-contradiction. That's why he said, although born a Hindu, he rejected two of its fundamental tenets and began his own journey into nirvana. The, the, the Muslim philosophers all believe in the law of non-contradiction. The Hebrew philosophers do. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Does the law of non-contradiction apply to reality? In the academy today, no. No. And so what's the barrier? Reason. It's an illogical culture in which we live. You do not have to be reasonable anymore. And so they look at you and say, you know, that's your faith. I'm, I respect you. I, I don't want to condemn you for it. Leave me with mine. What does it really matter? And finally, privatization, where there's a breakdown between the public and the private life. There's a breakdown between the public and the private life. And you find your total fulfillment and meaning in the private. Don't bring it into the public. You know what that would be like? That would be like me telling my wife, I want you to know I do only in private. I will never carry out I do in public. It would be like me telling you, I will never steal as long as I'm in private. But if I'm going to a public setting and I see some money lying on a counter somewhere, I might just do it because my worldview has changed after I stepped out of the threshold of my home. So you know what's happened? The East, in many ways, is still the East. The West is no longer the West. Because we have come to believe that meaning of the sacred is totally a private expression. Do not bring it into the public setting. 
And instead of finding unity in diversity, we have diversified all unities till we find no monolithic way of thinking about the sacred. What is it about the Ten Commandments that we don't like? Oh yeah, we say it's because it's cultural. But you know what it is that people who want it removed don't like about it? Because it presents to you that God is a sacred being and the entailments of that logically follow. Your time is sacred, your body is sacred, your possessions are sacred, your worship is sacred, your marriage is sacred, and so is it with your neighbor. But this is where I want to tell you that there are openings of evangelism that opens the doors because when privatization has had its full sway, there's a breakdown of meaning. No shame, no reason, no meaning. Those are the barriers to evangelism today. And people will say to you at the end, everything is meaningless. Why even bother with talking about what meaning actually means? But have you noticed the books that are now coming from the atheists? Richard Dawkins wants to hold de-baptizing services. Those who once believed have a de-baptizing ceremony. And now his book, The Greatest Show on Earth, so that he can introduce the concept of wonder, which the atheist really doesn't know what the concept means. Because as somebody once said, you know, uh, Oscar Wilde once said, he did not in any way feel he could appreciate sunsets because he did not have to pay for them. And G.K. Chesterton said Oscar Wilde was wrong. You can pay for sunsets by not living like Oscar Wilde. What Chesterton is saying is awe and reverence is a response to the greater power and the greater giver. If you are a person without gratitude, you are a person who will end up with total meaninglessness at the end of the day. Gratitude is an intrinsic part of living. A man once looked at Winston Churchill and said, I want you to know I'm a self-made man. And Churchill looked at him and said, you have just relieved God of a very solemn responsibility. <laughs> Gratitude is an intrinsic part of worship. And when you and I don't worship, we lose that sense of genuine awe and genuine wonder. Let me close with this. You know, there are three ways of looking at reality. One is the totally objective way, completely objective, where you think every pronouncement you make is based on comprehensive fact and infallible. Dawkins borders on that most of the time, that he knows for sure there is no God. They used to tell you in early courses in philosophy, always beware of an absolute negation. Because when you make an absolute negation, it assumes you have total knowledge in the discipline. But the positing of something does not presuppose it. If I told you there's no such thing as a, as a pink stone with purple dots anywhere in this universe, I would have to assume that I have 
total knowledge of this universe. But if I say to you, there is such a thing as a pink stone with purple dots, it does not necessarily assume that. It just assumes that I have knowledge of that particular stone. So when you make an absolute negation, it presupposes unlimited knowledge. And they suppose that again and again and again. They're not atheists, they're antitheists. And so total objectivity is one way of knowing it. The second one is what you would call total determinism. Total determinism means that all ideas are ultimately and beliefs are biochemically and culturally engendered. You cannot rise outside of the box. You are locked into it. Stephen Hawking borders very closely to this position. When I heard him lecture at Cambridge, he said that. We are determined. So you're totally determined and you are hardwired to come to certain conclusions. Now, the question is this. If you are hardwired to come to certain conclusions, are you also hardwired to come to the conclusion that you're hardwired to come to certain conclusions? Is that conclusion itself hardwired? And therefore, it's not a case of true or all. That's all the only way you will think. So you have either total objectivity or total determinism, neither of which leads you to a logical conclusion. There's only one way you can escape that if you are semi-transcendent. What do I mean by that? You're able to rise just above yourself to make meaningful statements about reality. Some years ago, when I was speaking at Johns Hopkins, I had followed Francis Collins, the great scientist, the head of the NIH. Francis Collins, a believer. I've known him, been with him, and always gives me a big hug when I see him. Says, keep doing what you're doing, Ravi. Keep doing what you're doing. Francis Collins, just before I stood up to speak, put up on the screen two slides, but he covered the right slide. He showed a magnificent stained glass window on the left side. Geometrically perfect, colors were incredible. The design was magnificent. He said, do you know what you're looking at? He said, you're looking at a stained glass window from the Yorkminster Cathedral in England. People were just taken by it, magnificent, designed by a great artisan. Then he uncovered the right side, even more spectacular. He said, you know what you're looking at now? He said, it's a vertical section of the human DNA. He said, there's 3.1 billion bits of information in that, designed by the greatest of all designers. When I sat there for a moment, I thought to myself, my goodness, that which I'm looking at is because of which I'm able to look at it. That which is leaving me in awe is because of which I'm capable of being awe-stricken. You know what Francis Collins did? He picked up his guitar and sang a gospel song. It was the only response of a brilliant mind, awe-stricken, by something magnificent. We can bring the meaningfulness of the gospel to men and women to show them that meaning happens when four things converge. Wonder, truth, love, and security.
wonder, truth, love, and security. Wonder puts you in that awe. Truth gives you the confines. Love gives you the existential, the experiential of it, and security, the hope, which keeps you going on and never tiring under the tyranny of the immediate. So ladies and gentlemen, we have a moment in history now, as dark as it seems, that people are willing to come and listen if you will give them meaningful answers. And let me just close with this thought. Believe again in the power of the gospel to transform. Not your arguments or mine, not your brilliance or mine or the lack of it, but the power of the gospel to transform and change lives, which rises above mere argument and becomes embodied in a life. I've often told my wife, if all the arguments against my belief in God were to be knocked down one day, I will never be able to get away from the fact that when I was 17, on a bed of suicide, a Bible was brought to me, and that transformation that took place in my life, I will never trade away with anything. I know I met the Christ in my experience, who changed not only what I did, but what I wanted to do. And that indelible impact of the conversion experience will always rise up above its pallbearers. So hang in there. Secularization with no shame, pluralization with no reason, privatization with no meaning gives you packed audiences everywhere we go because they want to find out is there truth, is there reason, is there meaning, and many of them stand up at the end of it and say, thank you for giving me something to think about. I came to university to find unity in diversity, and I'm graduating out of pluriversity because there are no answers here. God bless you, and thank you for giving me a hearing. We'll be back. Uh, looking forward to hearing Wade later, and then... <laughs> yeah.